This is an example of speech. All our history Welcome back to Tell Me What to Think. A free from oversight and free of charge, thoughtfully improvised, expletive deleted, details expanded, whistle blow hard, evergreen topical heat wave of an ongoing conversation, turned podcast, in which we discuss politics, global affairs, current events, and anything else that bubbles up from the unmoderated comment section in our brains. We urge you to join us and tell us what you think. Listen to the archives, go to stoneduckmedia.com or tell me what to think. You can contact us at tmwttpod at gmail.com. I'm producer Pete. You can contact me on Twitter at Bloated Nemesis. And your host is Charles Minnick, who is on Twitter at Green underscore Weird, which is spelled W-Y-R-D. This episode, Charles interviews candidate for congressional office from California's 7th District, Jeff Burdick. Prepare to get righteous and reactionary. This is Tell Me What to Think. Welcome back to Tell Me What to Think. I'm your host as always, Charles Minnick, and with me today, I have Jeff Burdick. Jeff, if you would please introduce yourself. Hi, Charles. Yes, I'm Jeff Burdick. I'm a progressive Democrat who's running for Congress in Sacramento County, California. Uh, for California's 7th District. Correct, correct. The 7th Congressional District. Currently, uh, it is uh, uh, represented by a fellow Democrat. His name is Ami Berra, and I'm the first Democrat to ever primary him in his uh, five uh, congressional races. Which is interesting, but uh, what brought you to politics, if I can ask? Well, my background is originally a journalist, a newspaper and magazine, and I eventually crossed over and got into public affairs work, uh, communications, media relations for a variety of very large organizations, both public sector as well as private. I currently work for Caltrans, which is the California State Transportation Department. Uh, we have about 20,000 employees, and in my current job, I'm a chief speechwriter as well as a public information officer. And in past positions, I've uh, served in similar capacities, always having to be aware of the political environments um, and helping uh, navigate uh, my executives uh, through those thickets. I've worked in a couple congressional campaigns, and uh, and I just decided uh, to uh, step out from behind the curtain and be in front when I realized in my congressional district, um, our current incumbent uh, wasn't representing the position positions that I favor, and those those are kind of true blue progressive positions. He is an, a moderate, as well as uh, the fact that he's never been primaried um, uh, in, uh, in more than eight years. I just felt it was time for someone to give the rest of this district a choice. So I decided to step, step on the other side of the curtain and put forward my knowledge of government policy and campaigns and put it to work for this district. Okay. Um, what's your the keystone of your campaign is your election reform constitutional amendment. Uh, can you talk about that for a second? 
Yeah, it's uh, it's. I always talk about two sides to my my campaign. One side are the solid progressive issues, Medicare for all, comprehensive drug cost reform, and the Green New Deal. But then the other side is this nonpartisan election reform constitutional amendment. The goal of this amendment is to reform many aspects of our elections that the Supreme Court has refused to address, or through other rulings has made worse. And these are things that pretty much all voters, 80% of voters agree on. Um, it's uh, getting a, a corporate impact money out of our campaigns. It's uh, um, um, undoing Citizens United. It's ending gerrymandering. It's ending uh, corporate personhood. These are all aspects of our elections that uh, are all aspects that then through our elections are removing um, the power that voters have. It's drowning out and diluting the voice that we have in D.C. Do you think support of that is strong enough nationally to make it the 28th Amendment? Uh, well, whenever you look at the polls, the numbers are there. But the big thing uh, that I find, both in my race but also nationally, is fighting just learned inertia, is what I call it. People who feel that you can never change something like that, so they don't even try to think about it. Um, in my campaign, I run up against that where people say the uh, incumbent I'm running against has raised so much money in his career, there's no way possible that you could beat him. But that's just, uh, that's, I guess, part of the challenge is uh, giving people an actual choice and then forcing them to think about it. And then hopefully, the way I put it is uh, their head and their hearts sometimes are not always in agreement, but when it comes to these issues and when they have that choice, many more end up seeing my head and my heart are in agreement. Sure. I mean, oftentimes uh, the heart leads and the head ends up, ends up catching up. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's the hope. Uh, um, and when it comes to the constitutional amendment that I'm proposing, it's actually the only chance we have left to change our system. Um, you know, as we've seen with uh, McCain-Feingold, uh, it, did, you know, it passed, but with a lot of erosion to its ideals and, and basically putting into it poison pills that guaranteed that the Supreme Court at that time was uh, going to overturn it. But of course, they overturned it much uh, worse than anyone expected, as opposed to just uh, turning it down. They uh, allowed for the creation of dark money, unreported money to get into our politics. And uh, um, so congression it was very hard for there to be a congressional will to even pass McCain-Feingold. And then the Supreme Court did not allow even um, um, like a 75% version of, it, of its ideals to, to remain the law. So we're in a situation where it, it, is, it has to be in the hands of us voters um, to change it. Um, further, the, uh, the, the kind of powers that are array, uh, arrayed against any other natural change to it um, goes quite deep. When you think of our three branches of government, um, you know, our, our, uh, our executive branch, uh, you know, it, it doesn't take any presidential matching funds anymore, not since uh, um, Obama's first race. Uh, 
that uh, both parties stop taking that money. In Congress, they've been they've been taking uh, lots of uh, corporate money and even have their own leadership packs for some time. I think that goes back to the late 70s. And now in the Supreme Court itself, every time we have a new nominee to the Supreme Court, immediately there's these big fundraising campaigns from very rich corporate donors uh, to raise the money for their nomination marketing campaigns. And so uh, that money is seeping into that branch as well. So ultimately, it's up to us voters to change it or it's never going to change back and only get worse with more corporate control and rule. Sure. One central point that you seem to bring up in your uh, platform is this will basically clear the logjam in Congress. Yes, I. it's my belief that when we look at the gridlock we see in Congress, a lot of it just goes back to this campaign fundraising issue. Both national parties and then all of the uh, members of Congress each have their own little business models that requires uh, a whole lot of money to be raised just to keep the business afloat, just to keep the overhead. So all these people who are paid in, in Washington as advisors, as staffers, at the DNC, at the RNC, at the DCCC, uh, all of the different consultants that are out there, pollsters working for it, it's a very large uh, um, business that has to be kept afloat, and, they, and that requires them to raise billions of dollars. And where do you find those billions of dollars? Well, you have to go to the same very rich corporations to get it. And so it's really hard to see any change coming from that area. But, but in terms of the gridlock, you have to keep. It's almost like having a very expensive mortgage. How are you going to come up with your nut every month? you got to keep getting that money. And so they're both competing, chasing after the same money. And the only way to keep getting that money is to feed the monster, which is partisan gridlock. Right. Increasingly partisan circus. Yeah, exactly. Um, so what do you uh, envision as when you say fighting for economic justice and security? Well, uh, when I think about many of the problems in our country, and it goes back to gridlock and it goes back to this money that's in politics, and if we can get it out, then we can start addressing a lot of these issues which are the victims of gridlock. And when we think about economic security, uh, first we're talking about uh, um, um, uh, income inequality and combating that. Uh, And there's so many issues that just won't come to the floor of Congress because big industries have a veto right that they've been able to buy through their big donations. And and it applies to economic uh, equality issues. It applies to social issues such as gun reform, such as the Hyde Amendment with the abortion issue, um, defense procurement reform. Uh, just issue after issue, they won't come to the floor because there's too much uh, very rich vested interests who won't allow it to happen. Um, all right, well, to turn it to some, shall we say, kitchen table issues, you, you're in favor of Medicare for All, as you say. I am, yes. It's, uh, I was a big big fan when Obamacare did pass. Uh, I, I thought it was just an important first step. It was an intermediate step. And when I hear people saying, well, you know, let's make a few more little steps before we get to universal health care, as, as, as far as I'm concerned, there's no other intermediate steps. There's just, there's just jogging in place or, or, or stepping backwards or making the full step to a single-payer universal coverage plan as it, as it relates to like an economic 
economic issues um, on an individual level. Um, that's a major issue for many families and individuals uh, to have peace of mind on. If we can have uh, Medicare for all, which would provide simpler, less expensive and accessible health care, it takes out a major issue for so many people. Here in the Sacramento area and in California, we have a major issue involving very high homeless rates. And, uh, and there's so many people who are just so close to losing a job, not having the money for an emergency situation, who could be pushed into situations which ultimately lead to homelessness. Now, if you can take out the issue of uh, health care for a lot of people, that could reduce um, um, all of the, uh, the, uh, the challenges that face people right before they perhaps have to turn to homelessness. If you can provide uh, free medical health care as well that that'll take care of a lot of the uh, the mental issues that involve probably about a third of homeless homelessness uh, and then there's also the issue of um, people who have addictions too if you can take care of that issue with uh, um, by providing those services we can address that and so uh, to me um, Medicare for all can address so many issues and then you're also talking about um, businesses small businesses large businesses who would love to have this issue taken off their books it would certainly simplify their business operations no Save longer force them money. to have to every few years renegotiate usually negotiate down and it would also allow them actually allow smaller businesses to more equally compete for labor because if you're under 50 employees you don't necessarily have to offer health care and if you can't afford it you might not be able to afford the same type of employees with the same skills that larger corporations do so it would uh, it would uh, level the playing field in many ways. It would strengthen the safety net in our society. Um, so I see it just as a win-win, provided that we can ensure those, uh, those cost savings that the um, Congressional Budget Office uh, um, sees in Medicare for All. Are you talking like single-buyer prescription rates? That would be part of it, too. Uh, I always talk about uh, that Medicare for all, as much as I'm for it, I also don't say that it's going to solve every single problem. And certainly when it comes to lowering drug costs, prescription drug costs, this is an area where uh, the benefits, the cost savings in some ways can only be as good as our government is principled. And Medicare for all will take out that layer of insurance providers, but there still are going to be all those very rich big pharma companies out there, the device makers, um, the hospital corporations, which will still be able to influence Congress until we can get their money out of our elections and have a much more um, honest uh, brokering on behalf of the public to lower those costs, too. Um, would you be in favor of set, like forgiving medical debt as part of this effort? Uh, forgiving medical debt? Mm -hmm. Well, um, I haven't thought about that too far. Usually, you know, we hear a lot about the, um, obviously, um, uh, school tuition debt. Uh, it would be something that would have to be looked at. I have to study it much further to, to see where it is. Um, and it would depend on who the debt is owed to as well. Um, um, you, you, you know, you'd hate to ball every single every single, I guess, a debt holder into the same bag, as well as, um, but yeah, um, I, is that something that you've studied yourself? Well, I mean, what, two-thirds of bankruptcies are related to medical expenses currently, so 
mm-hmm. even just any kind of marginal help on that front would be huge for a lot of households. And is uh, medical debt not covered by like the bankruptcy laws? Uh, it was the bankruptcy reform that happened in what 2006 actually opened up medical debt for, as a cause of bankruptcy. Oh, okay. Yeah, so like I said, I probably need to review that one much further, but uh, um, it is it is uh, very unfortunate when uh, debt is run up on these services. Um, first, because on health, it's something where it, you really can't negotiate on it. It's your health, you know, and You'll oftentimes... You'll pay whatever price. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, my, my opponent, he talks about he's a, uh, a big proponent of the free markets when it comes to health care. And, uh, and of course, that's just kind of a strange situation because anyone who's been in an emergency situation, you don't really have time to shop around. And uh, there have been attempts to create um, online systems where perhaps you can compare and compare different costs for uh, for uh, walk-in services, but it becomes very complicated. You know what's included, what's not included, and of course, when it comes to uh, one's children, you know, are, are you really going to say, "Oh, I'm, I'm going to go with you know, you know, cost level C"? I think it's as good as cost level A, but you know, I think we can save some money here. You know, no one does it that way, as as we see. With even um, college tuition costs, you know, people don't try to barter away their children's future, looking for a better deal. Sure. Um, well, taking it to children, would you be in favor of uh, universal child care and universal uh, what 4K? In terms of universal child care, I uh, I certainly support what Bernie Sanders has put out, and I know uh, Elizabeth Warren has hers as well. Um, my, my my hope is is that universal health care i mean universal child care is, is a symptom that perhaps would be solved in other ways i'm a person who who's very aware of the two income trap that has caused so many problems for so many families where just just to you know tread water you need both parents to work and so few families can make that choice for one person to stay at home and in our society has uh, arranged things in such a way in terms of the finances that everyone has to work outside the home and we have to then hire other people to handle all these other duties um, I I don't know for sure if addressing you know Medicare for all and and, and getting college tuition costs back uh, uh, in more of a sensible range these sorts of things would allow more middle class families to have that cushion to have like one person work full time and maybe the other person work part time. My hope would be by returning our our society to a more equitable one that we are able to get into a place where more families. Families, including working families don't have to make that choice but if it's a situation where you have a single mother a single father uh, it would be nice for them to not have to worry about that and still be able to bring home the money but you are in favor of universal 4k right um, I'm not familiar with universal oh you know I mean uh, Pre- a minimum yeah, fourth, income? yeah well no no 4k is uh preschool from when they're four like it's basically oh. another year of a primary school 
Uh, correct. Yeah. So I, I would kind of consider that almost part and parcel with universal child care as well. So yeah, here in California, we have a whole we have a whole program related to the first five years and how important it is. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yes. So uh, and, and here in California, we do um, uh, on a um, on a cost base, on a, on a on an income means base, do provide a lot of those services to people who fall below um, a minimum income, which sure. is really nice to see. Would you be, uh, well, t- speaking of Head Start, would you be in favor of expanding that to, uh, shall we say, a broader range of income categories? Uh, well, when I was in Chicago, I worked for the Chicago Public Schools, and um, there, at that time, 82% of our students were at or below the poverty level. Um, and uh, so certainly those students were already covered by it. And it was almost every year it seemed to be a fight to make sure that Head Start dollars weren't going to be uh, um, um, decreased. In terms of increasing it, uh, I don't have a problem increasing it. There's lots of ways of doing the right means testing to make sure that uh, people who, who truly do need, need that assistance get it. Uh, and so I'm not opposed to it. I would just have to see what the, uh, the means testing equation were sure sure i guess that's but uh um i guess you mentioned janice my one of my producers would kick Mm -hmm. me if i uh, didn't ask you about that because he always tries to make me ask (laughs) interviewees about it well my uh I, i am a union member and uh, SEIU Local 1000, and uh, um, in the Janus decision, and we're talking about the uh, um, the Supreme Court the, decision, the, of course. Yeah, the right to work law, right, and mm-hmm. uh, and not paying dues. Yeah, so I, it's a very unfortunate what's happened with unions over over decades, and uh, I'm um, a big. Um, opponent of right to work laws, both from the point of view of allowing uh, with the Janus decision people to opt out of paying their dues for collective bargaining. I'm a little more sympathetic when it comes to not donating money, uh, giving dues or having extra money uh, taken out um, just for uh, political action committees, because as you know, I'd like to get rid of all the political action committees. Um, And I don't think there's ever enough money that unions can raise through political action committees to counter the money that the corporations can. But uh, right to work laws, uh, I've found have only hurt people. Um, uh, It gives just so much power beyond the union situations for people who are exempted employees. The uh, I've seen so many situations where people have lost their jobs unfairly just because executives are protecting their own their own positions. And uh, there's just so many levels at which uh, right to work laws have been bad for workers, bad for middle class families, bad for working class families. Uh, all right. Well, I guess let's uh, turn to the horse race and talk about your opponent. Yeah, well, yeah, my, my opponent, his name is Ami Barra. He's, uh, he's finishing up his fourth term uh, in the U.S. House of Representatives. Uh, he's a former doctor. And uh, when he first won, he ran once and lost uh, when the seat was occupied by a Republican. But then with the help of redistricting, he was finally able to win the district. And at that time, uh, back in 2012, it was, uh, it was uh, you know, quite celebrated being able to win the district back from the Republicans. Um, it was for a couple races, a very expensive district to run in. And in his case, though, uh, it came out in 2013. 
2015-2016 that those two early races that he, he, he partly was uh, benefiting from a uh, money laundering scheme run by his 80-year-old father who was, uh, who was basically giving huge amounts of money to friends and family members who would then donate it to the campaign over a quarter of a million dollars. Wow, and, that's a uh, lot of straw donors. Yeah, and so the uh, the eighty year old father went to jail. Um, they uh, the federal investigators did not feel they had enough to prosecute uh, Barra, and, uh, and so in some ways the father's uh, gambit of helping his son get into Congress worked. <laughs> he went to jail. His son went to Congress, and uh, ever since there's been various uh, ethical violations that have kind of shadowed uh, our incumbent, but. We, you know, we always try to give credit to him for turning the district blue. And since then, though, he's always run as a purple Democrat, very moderate. Uh, he helped co-found the Problem Solvers Caucus in, huh. in Congress, which is half Republican, half Democrat. The idea is supposedly that these more moderate members of their parties could come together and fashion uh, legislation that would be more bipartisan. Um, but that group has never succeeded at passing anything <laughs> and most of their members they propose something and everyone from their side of the problem solvers will endorse it but no one from the other side of the problem solvers and vice versa um, and but uh, uh, my my opponent Barra, you know, he's he, he he's used that to show that you know he tries to be very bipartisan, very moderate. But uh, as time has gone by, the district is no longer um, purple. You know, we're not a swing state. Uh, in fact, his difficulties, his eth ethical difficult difficulties, have obscured the fact that this district has turned extremely democratic, and it's only competitive because because of Barra. He's not very well-liked among Democrats, rank-and-file Democrats. There's a whole lot of never bear voters out there. Um, there's a group of voters who, who, I, who I would fall into, who I call Grimace and Barra, because we've never had another Democratic candidate as a choice to vote for, you, and you don't want it to turn red, you vote for Barra. Uh, and so this is the first time that this district will have a chance to choose between two different types of Democrats. Now, in my situation, though, I will not be able to compete with him in terms of money. Last election cycle, he raised $2.9 million. And this election cycle, he's getting close to $2 million. And he still and, has 1.6 uh, on hand. <laughs> but uh, the strategy I've come up with uh, is, well, first of all, my I would never have run if I needed to raise that money. I would, I, I'm not, my ambition is not so large that I want to win the wrong way. I want to win the right way, and there's a chance to win the right way, and if I can, that could be the spark of the wildfire that could then lead to true reform. So I, I have taken the most principled campaign finance pledge in the nation, no PAC money, no corporate money, only raising money from voters in my district. It's a principle I believe in, um, but it's also a strategy, too, to be high contrast to my opponent. And uh, um, and uh, 
basically creating an asymmetrical situation. Um, his uh, Q4 numbers were just released by the FEC, and uh, our campaign did our due diligence on him, and we discovered that uh, in all four quarters last year, he had 69 corporations give money through their PACs to him for $150,000 total, and those 69 corporations have been fined by the U.S. government or penalized by other governments up to uh, over $99 billion since 2000. So this is the situation we have. We have a candidate who I'm running against who's always been afraid of being uh, um, um, opposed by a well-funded campaign uh, on the other side, and he's had several, and he just keeps raising money from very bad players. Um, this is your... your, uh, your uh, um, Goldman Sachs's. It's uh, out here in California. PG&E is our big electrical company, but they, uh, their um, uh, poor management of their system led to several wildfires in the state, including the one that devoured the, the town of Paradise. So hundreds of people have died because of that corporation. And even though they're in bankruptcy right now, the bankruptcy laws do not prevent them from giving millions of dollars in political donations. Wait, so, bankruptcy doesn't freeze their assets from contributing to politics? What? <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> oh, there's yeah, some low-hanging compromise. Yeah, <laughs> what politician would pass that law? Right. <laughs> um, and it, it's also interesting, Ami Bear is a doctor, and, uh, and um, of course he's against Medicare for all. He even keeps saying he was against Obamacare. Um, and so it's not surprising that you know since, nine, uh, since 2014, he's raised over $1.1 million from Big Pharma, Big Insurance, and the HMOs. Uh, so that's where he gets some of his money. But kind of the most startling source of money he's gotten is... Uh, you know, I discovered that he's even uh, taken 50, nearly $50,000 from the largest opioid makers and distributors. And uh, Sacramento has uh, a opioid death rate that's twice the state level the state average. Um, in addition, these uh, these seven different donors to Ami Barra campaign who are part of the opioid industry, they're all currently being sued by the county of Sacramento. And uh, so, you know, the, you know, so it's, uh, it's some, some really unusual bedfellows that once you commit to the system of raising a lot of money, uh, there's you you cannot uh, um, um, really create too ethical of a filter on who you're going to accept it from. You just got to accept it from everyone. Yeah, it seems he's got a really unusual cam or uh, profile in that he has more money from health professionals than retired people. Which even for a you know an institutional Democrat, their typical typically their biggest supporting or their typical biggest industry is you know retired people, but not. Health professionals. Yeah. Yes. So uh, the this and this may be a, a challenge that a lot of progressives have across the country. So um, with with my campaign, I've on on purpose decided I'm not going to be going after the easy big sources of money. And so I knew I would never be able to compete with him in terms of money. And uh, but I didn't know what I'd be able to raise locally. And uh, so the same sort of uh, learned inertia I spoke about as it relates to a constitutional amendment, it also applies locally. Most people don't think it's possible to beat Vera, even though if you look at just it purely from the numbers, the demographics, the demographics are there. Ami Vera has been underperforming 
the Democratic size of this district for some time. Um, you could go back to 2016. Barra was locked in a um, a really nasty, expensive race against an equally ethically challenged uh, Republican, and uh, and he won by two and a half points. Barra did, but that same year, in that same election, Hillary Clinton won this district by eleven points, and so wow, that's terrible. Yeah, and then in 2018, uh, there was 25% more registered Democrats than Republicans, plus you had the big blue wave um, that increased uh, the turnout, but he, he barely got doubled. It was the first time he had a safe uh, re-election campaign in the general, but it was 10%. But if you looked at the numbers, it would not have been surprising for another candidate to have won by 25 30%, because even our independents and uh, unaffiliated, they lean slightly Democratic, too. So there's a whole lot of votes he's been leaving on the table. And as I said before, there's a lot of never Barra voters out there. And then there's these Grimace and Barra voters like myself who had no other choice Um, And trying to get that message out to people as well as the news media has been very challenging. Um, My background is journalism and uh, basically none of our major TV, radio or our daily newspaper want to cover this issue. They wouldn't want to cover the opioid issue. They won't cover this recent issue that, that we discovered regarding um, the, the $99 billion in fines from Barra's big corporate donors. They just don't want to touch it. Um, part of, I don't know, it, you can come up with sinister reasons. Some of it also may be related to the fact that California has a two, um, 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 it, it's an all-in primary system where the top two vote-getters it's move on. It's a runoff on. primary. Correct. So uh, it, it easily could be myself and Ami Berra uh, for the next nine months after March 3rd uh, running head-to-head. And so in some cases they think, well, the, 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 the primary doesn't matter much because things don't heat up until you get to the final two. However, if, uh, if I can't get enough name recognition, enough people realizing that there's a real choice out there, uh, the Republicans, you know, they have 30% of our district, but if they all go for one Republican, um, you know, that may be the number two, and then Barra wins very easily, and we're stuck with the same sort of moderate Democrat corporate back um, for another two years. And, and it'd be unfortunate because uh, we may have a progressive uh, president in the White House and, uh, and um, Barra um, could very well um, caucus at times with the Republicans. Have you reached out to any other organizations like Brand New Congress, DSA, or the Rose Caucus for help with your campaign? Um, well, I've reached out to Justice Democrats. I've reached out to um, uh, um, Our Revolution, um, and I just couldn't and never really got much response. Um, I've reached out to yeah, a number of other groups. Uh, the way I, uh, and for whatever reason, um, uh, 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 I just never even get any response. You know, we've 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 re- we've reached out multiple times and uh, had multiple people um, um, nominate us and. And so, but uh, I'm I'm always the happy warrior in this campaign. So you just you just deal with what you got, and you keep keep fighting ahead. And uh, you never know tom- tomorrow something may change. And uh, the whole reason why I decided to run was because no one else was giving it a try. And at the very least, I wasn't going to be part of that inertia of just you know wishing someone else would run and trying. So. 
we just keep trying. We'll see maybe uh, maybe later this week uh, one of our weeklies endorse me. Maybe that changes the dynamics. We'll see. Well, uh, mail-in balloting has already started in California. What's your feel of the primary turnout? Or how is it going to look? I think my estimate is that uh, our we're going to have a record turnout in the primary because uh, uh, California's primary moved up to Super Tuesday and because of the great interest in the presidential uh, primary field, uh, it's going to be extremely um, large turnout. The, high, uh, the previous record, I, I believe, was about 180,000 primary voters, um, but I'm expecting over 2,000 based on the trends from previous elections. That can help me. Um, you know, there's a possibility, even if people don't know who I am, that they see just the D and some of those never bear voters and Grimace and Barra voters vote for me. Now, if that's enough, will that be enough for me to um, finish number two? We'll see. Um, the uh, the month long mail in uh, balloting um, season does make it a little challenging, a little more challenging for a candidate like me. There's not like one moment in time that you're focused on, and as we go through the month, the number of people who turn in their ballots increases, and there's fewer and fewer people to go after, and you don't even know exactly where those people are. Right, um, your blanket efforts are less effective. Yes, so uh, there's still groups in in my uh, district that are still considering endorsements. And uh, I was a campaign manager last cycle for a progressive in this district. And it was the same situation where I'm trying to explain to them, you know, for it to have any value to the campaign as well as, you know, to your organization as well, like for recruiting, you, you have to get out with your endorsements far earlier. And I've been fortunate I have had a couple groups endorse me um, early on, um, but uh, uh, there's still a lot of adjustment by the, the political groups uh, in the district who who you'd think are the most energized and involved in politics, but they've been slow to adjust to the new reality of mail-in balloting. That's unfortunate. Well, hopefully it uh, turns out to be a successful experiment. Yes, yeah, yeah. Well, it seems like most people are happy with it, and we haven't seen any downsides, any tampering, uh, even with all of these ballots out there. Um, I know California itself has invested a lot into um, um, anti-hacking um, and protections of our voting system. Now, this mail-in balloting, it's not statewide. It's in select markets, Sacramento being, I think, one of four. Um, so they're, they're watching it closely to see what the results are. All right, Jeff, uh, would you like to plug your social media and leave us off with some closing thoughts? Uh, well, yeah, certainly welcome everyone to go to uh, BurdickForCongress.com. That's Burdick, B as in boy, U-R, D as in dog, I-C-K, for, spelt out, F-O-R, Congress.com. And there you you can find our, uh, our Facebook and Twitter uh, um, um, links. And, uh, and I have about 13 videos up about different issues in the campaign. And, um, you know, the big, the big thing I always emphasize in our district is uh, just to participate um, just like AOC in 2018 you just don't know when it's going to break for you in the right way you just got to keep grinding it out 
have a plan, work the plan, and um, and if your uh, intentions are pure, uh, some people will find you, and you may have a chance. And maybe it takes two election cycles, or maybe it takes one. But participating and breaking through that inertia is our only option, because otherwise, all of the big money donors and corporations are just going to keep controlling more and more. All right, we'll be buried under this log jam. Yes. So, but I appreciate the uh, the opportunity to come on your show, Charles. All right. Thanks again, Jeff.